2: If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.
1: There are choices that can change your life.
3: Like the choice to start routine colorectal cancer screening at age 45.
1: It's one of the most common cancers for women and men and it doesn't always have symptoms.
3: But there's good news. Routine screening can catch colorectal cancer early and even prevent it.
1: And there's even better news. You have screening options.
3: Make the choice to put your health first. Talk to your doctor about your screening options or visit cdc.gov/screenforlife for more information.
2: Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking.
4: Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks the future and says, from my heart and from my hand, why don't people understand my intention? I'm Jonathan Strickland.
1: I'm Lauren Volkelbaum.
4: And I'm Joe McCormick. So uh guys, have you have you ever watched uh, it's a little known documentary film called Jurassic Park?
5: I only saw Jurassic Park 3, <laughs> but it was fantastic. Uh, uh no, I saw Jurassic Park in the theater when I was a kid and it blew my mind. I probably I got the VHS tape when it came out and I watched it until the tape was no more.
4: Right. I mean, it, it was certainly one of those that sparked people's imaginations. For one thing, of course, it was a great example of uh, CGI in an era when, before that, you didn't really see it at at that level of sophistication. It, it was, for the time, really believable effects.
5: Oh yeah, people love CGI in the '90s. But if you go back and watch most of those '90s movies now, they look awful.
4: Yeah, they definitely so don't bad. measure up.
1: Yeah, well, it's, you know, Jurassic Park was one of the ones that really incorporated puppets and also practical and CG, which, yeah, yeah. Is that was how, a good choice. How things held up.
4: Yep, yep. And so here's the thing, guys. Um, you know, it, it kind of popularized this idea of what if we could get some sort of genetic material from long extinct species? And then through some sort of science application, bring those extinct species back to life, a la Jurassic Park.
5: You notice in Jurassic Park when they're taking them through the lab, they kind of skip through all the hard parts.
4: Well, I love that the science is all delivered by a cartoon character that is dumbing everything down for the lowest common denominator. And part of that is so that the writers don't have to go to the trouble of actually explaining how it works. Or how
5: it would work if it
4: could work. Right.
1: Well, the the book, to be fair, went a little bit more into that, but it's still absolutely a work of fiction. And even though Michael Crichton has has this cute tendency of footnoting his fictional works, uh, that doesn't mean that those footnotes are based on.
5: Whoa, whoa, whoa. Work of fiction. Now, I thought we had already cloned a few dinosaurs. Is that not true? No. We we don't have resurrected raptors and T-Rexes.
4: We do Somewhere in Texas? Only in my heart. Yeah, sadly, no. So the reason why this this is a a part of our discussion today is because in the news recently, there have been some articles about de-extinction. And we wanted to talk about what de-extinction is and, uh, and what its applications could be and why there is controversy around it. But to start off, uh, it kind of helps lay the groundwork if we actually talk about just the whole problem of ex- extinction in the first place. So first, how many species go extinct every year?
5: I don't know how you could even guess yeah
4: I mean. n- yeah it turns out that that that's very difficult you can really just estimate for one thing we don't even know how many species there are do we uh,
1: absolutely not we are still discovering some like fifteen thousand species every year and uh researchers think that that of the 1.2 million that we've already documented on on this our wonderful planet earth that might be a part of some uh 8.7 million that are kicking around
4: Wow. So, yeah, we, we still have quite a bit of uh, quite a few more species to discover before we get close to it.
5: We're like not even a quarter of the way there. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. There might be some some 80 percent of life on Earth that is yet undiscovered. Um, But but here's the thing. A lot of the ones that we're currently discovering are already endangered.
4: Yeah. So they're already you know, the the population's already so small that that. Uh, the smallest of, of influences could make these populations go extinct.
1: Things could be going extinct before we have even documented them.
5: And it's worth pointing out that things go extinct naturally. I mean, that yes. happens all the time. Oh, sure. But and we... not just
1: when meteors hit either. R-
5: right. No, I mean, just uh, due to the pressures of nature, you know, food supply and predation, things go out of business. Yep. Sometimes a species is, is gone but also we drive things to extinction, don't we?
4: Yes, there's a there's natural background extinction, which is what the rate of extinction would be if humans were not part of the picture, and it is significantly lower than once you factor humans in.
5: How significantly?
4: Well, scientists estimate that the extinction extinction rate is 1,000 to 10,000 times greater than that background extinction rate according to the World Wildlife Fund. So that's wow. 1,000 to 10,000 times, I mean, That's human influence right there. On top of that, that means that anywhere between 0.01 and 0.1% of all species go extinct every year. And again, the reason why 0.01 to 0.1 is because we don't know how many species there are, nor can we really get an estimate on exactly how many are going extinct every year. So these are all, you know, based on, on like wide ranges of guesses. And if you want to know how wide, well, the estimation of how many species are out there uh, and the extinction rates taken into uh, as a combination mean that something between 200 and 100,000 species are going extinct every year. So on the <laughs> low end, 200 species. Not great, but, you know. Not a hundred thousand, but again, all of this is just based on those those crazy estimations of how many species are out there and how many are actually dying out. Ah, uh,
1: right. And I do want to put in that not all of these species are like adorable monkeys. Um, there's no. a lot of uh, bacteria and stuff like yeah. that involved in these calculations. Right,
4: right. Uh, and some the, of them,
1: however, are totally adorable monkeys. Some of them
4: are adorable <laughs> monkeys, or or some other you know equally adorable animal. And according to the IUCN red list criteria, there are 16,938 species on the endangered list. And the same list identifies 905 species that are now extinct in the wild.
5: Now extinct, like since the beginning of this classification?
4: Yeah, essentially they're identifying species. Some of these, there are still uh, examples of those species, but they are all in captivity. Oh, okay. none of them are in the wild. I
5: see what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Like in zoos. Like, or labs Exactly.
4: Or... You won't you won't find them in their home ecosystems anymore. Or at least none have been spotted for at least a few decades. Uh, and in fact, that's one of the problems with listing animals as extinct. You know, it's all based upon our observations. It's not like we have a little light on a giant switchboard. And when the light goes out, you know that that species is gone. And so it's a little complicated.
5: Okay, so now that we can see how fast the problem is getting worse—that we're we're changing ecosystems constantly by knocking species out of business—this can't be a great idea to just drive species to extinction with no forethought. is it it possible to reverse the polarity?
4: Um, Okay, so we're going Star Trek on this. Uh, Okay, (laughs) Uh, technically, it's. It depends. It depends upon the species and how long it's been extinct. So, for example, Jurassic Park. That's the example with all the dinosaurs coming back. Is that realistic? As it turns out, it is not. And the reason for that is because DNA degrades over time. It does not remain completely pristine. Even if you were to find a mosquito buried in amber that had dinosaur blood in it, that DNA will degrade within the little gut of that mosquito. So it's not like you're going to suddenly have a perfect uh, strand of DNA where you can sequence a dinosaur's genome. It's just not going to happen.
5: Well, you're not even going to get like a few little strands like... I don't know. Give me some numbers here. Uh, okay.
1: The thing is, is that DNA is is only really readable for about a million years. It's it's got a half life of 521 years, which means that that half of the the nucleotide bonds in it will break down every 521 years, right? Gotcha. Um, Which means that basically anything over a million years old is effectively gibberish and anything over some 6.8 million is effectively destroyed, Um, which is pretty impressive for for DNA. That's a lot longer than we actually thought originally that it was going to last. But the thing is that the dinosaur extinction event happened some 63 million years ago. Um, the the oldest sample of DNA I've read about being used to create a successful clone was only frozen for 16 years. Yeah. Uh,
5: okay. So, but here's a question I always had about Jurassic Park, which is, even if you could get that DNA, even if what you're talking about didn't happen, how would you make it into an egg that hatches? Yeah, we'd have to, um. I feel like they skipped over that part in the movie. I don't remember what they said. Yes. Something about frogs. Well, <laughs> they,
4: they, they combined, they combined, they filled in gaps. In the genome that they had. And, and we'll talk a little bit about filling in gaps because that actually oh, is right. something that people are trying to do. Yeah,
5: no, the, they filled it with the DNA of a frog. I guess yeah. the question is more like uh, physical. How'd they get it into an egg? Uh, yeah.
1: they, they also they also um, used frog eggs, I believe, for for cloning purposes. The, the way that cloning works is usually you scoop the DNA out of a existing cell nucleus and put new DNA material in there, right? Right, And yeah. you
4: and then you hope it ends up forming an embryo.
1: Yeah. Uh, the, the problem is that that egg cells contain mitochondria, which contain their own little bits of DNA from the donor animal. And unlike in, say, Star Trek, when Klingons and humans, which evolved on completely separate planets, yeah. can produce viable offspring, or, or even in Jurassic Park, where it just gave them plot-dependent hero-saving weaknesses, um, really, <laughs> it, it's more likely that these cells would just be be unviable. They would not be able to germinate. Would not produce any kind of uh, any kind of life.
4: Yeah, and also I should point out that it wasn't just weaknesses. It also gave them their strength because that was what gave the dinosaurs the ability to spontaneously switch sexes, so oh, that allowed right. them to continue yeah. to have because uh, they were supposed to all be female, and then uh, they a couple of them ended up being able because they, because the genetic material they had was taken from frogs that were able to change their genders based because upon life their population. finds a way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
5: Okay, so. I guess we can't bring dinosaurs back.
4: Right. What
5: can we do? Can we, maybe we can't resurrect a T Rex. Can we resurrect something like a mammoth?
4: Uh, actually, there are a lot of people working on exactly that The woolly mammoth has become kind of the poster animal for a lot of different efforts not the only one we've got another one we'll chat about
1: uh yeah populations of of wooly mammoths were around as as early late as uh, about ten thousand years ago or, or possibly as recently as four thousand years ago
4: yeah so that's certainly a viable uh, a viable option I', I most of the time I hear around 10,000 years is about what people expect to be able to bring back from extinction. That's like a kind of a round figure that people throw around. But as for actual efforts, like real scientists doing real science trying to bring extinct animals back, we've got two examples we can talk about right now that were semi-successful. Uh, semi-successful meaning that Ultimately, you didn't have an animal survive very long, but but there was kind of promising development. Yeah,
1: technically successful. So if
4: you get sad about stories about furry animals not living very long, you may want to skip ahead a little bit because I'm gonna tell you about Celia. Lay it on me. All right, so Celia was the last known living Barcado, which is a type of ibex, and and for those of us who don't encounter ibex, is very frequently, that's sort of kind of like a goat like animals, the ones that have the really long, rounded horns and uh, like they 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 loop back. Well, the bracado was one population, one uh, one species. So it uh, had dwindled until they really only thought there was this one living bracado left and they named her Celia, fitted her with a collar, kept her in the wild. The collar uh, monitored Celia's life signs. And then one day the collar essentially indicated that Celia's heart had stopped beating a team went out to find out what had happened and discovered that Celia had been crushed to death by the limb of a falling tree they they managed to um, harvest some cells from Celia and they froze them they they preserved them and then years later another team of researchers and scientists decided to try and bring the burcado
1: back it was only about 3 years later so this was so the cells had not been in cold storage for very long
4: yeah they, they ended up harvesting the nuclei from those cells and then they used emptied goat egg cells and in, injected the, the nuclei from the bracato into the goat egg cells and then implanted those into surrogate mothers. And they did 57 attempts. Only seven of those resulted in pregnancy and six of those ended in miscarriage. However, that, that last uh, example was actually brought all the way up to where you had a, a baby bercado delivered by C-section. Um, the baby burcado or the kid, unfortunately didn't have its lungs developed properly. One of its lungs actually formed essentially like a solid mass of tissue, kind of like they, they described it being more like a liver than a uh, lung.
1: Yeah. That's not, not good for breathing.
4: Yeah. And it, it, essentially uh suffocated to death shortly after it was born so it only it only survived a couple of minutes uh so that's very sad but it did lay the groundwork and foundation for a lot of other uh groups to kind of make this attempt this was back in in 2003 so this was you know you know more than a decade ago now uh there's another project called the Lazarus project which um it's the university of newcastle australia and they decided to go with a totally different kind of cute cuddly animal a uh, a frog that gives birth by regurgitating its babies <laughs> yeah uh, it's a it's a frog that gives birth through its mouth it essentially regurgitates its babies
5: but if you kiss it it regurgitates a prince
4: <laughs> it re- no it actually regurgitates prince And he'll sing "Purple Rain."
5: It turns into a prince that regurgitates frogs.
4: (laughs) I I think we might be getting off track. What actually happens is uh, the way this frog reproduces: it lays eggs. The eggs are fertilized, and then the frog swallows the eggs to protect them. And then once the eggs hatch, it pukes up the babies. So uh, this particular frog, though, had gone extinct. Joe, this is no laughing matter. This is this is life. I'm just protecting them. I'm not. (laughs) Well sure when you put it like that it sounds like it's you know obscene but no it's it's really how these animals um how these animals uh, survive and um this particular animal that the Rio bactrachius silus frog uh has gone went extinct back in the uh, the you know 1970s uh but some of its cells had been in deep freeze in a regular freezer actually uh since the 1970s And so the Lazarus Project harvested the nuclei and then they put them into emptied frog cells from great barred frogs, which are a fairly close relative to the frog that had gone extinct. So some of the cells began to divide and go right into the embryo stage, but none of the embryos survived past a few days. So again, sort of promising results, but not a a full success. Then you have another group called Revive and Restore. This is one... That I thought was really interesting. There are several articles that published in early 2014 about their particular drive to de-extinction technologies, and their approach is a little different from what we've been talking about. They're looking at creating a chimera, which is not uh, the mythological creature that you know, you may be familiar with, particularly if you played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons as a although kid.
1: that would be cool. Can can we de-extinctify uh we, mythical animals? Gelatinous as well? Cube. well we yeah. gotta
4: we gotta wait till the end of the podcast before we talk about that. Okay. But uh okay. We, we will address that, yes. Um but yes, Revive and Restore was looking at creating this these these animals that outwardly resemble one species, but internally have some elements of a different species. So they are a chimera of two different species. And uh, the example that was used in all the articles, because one of the, the people involved in Revive and Restore is so passionate about this particular species, is the passenger pigeon. Now, I, d- I don't know how much you guys know about passenger pigeons. At one time, it was the dominant species of birds in the United States. There were something like five billion of them.
1: I've, I've read reports of, like, the flocks of them blotting out the sun.
4: Yeah, they, they made up 60 percent of all birds in the U.S. So... To think that we went from a population that enormous to completely extinct in just a couple of decades due to hunting and and other problems as well is pretty eye-opening. To think that, you know, essentially that's saying like no species is safe. If you think of something that looks that plentiful and yet could go extinct that quickly, it's a real eye-opener. Well, the idea behind the passenger pigeon approach is to uh, sequence the passenger pigeon genome by harvesting cells from various museum exhibits that have passenger pigeons like, you know, stuffed on, mm-hmm. on display to take some cells from that and to try and sequence the genome. And there's gaps in that genome, kind of like in Jurassic Park. And so to fill in those gaps, they start looking at some of the closest relatives to the passenger pigeon and trying to kind of, you know, fudge it a little bit, fill it in.
1: Yeah, the the, the modern band-tailed pigeon, I think, is really close.
4: One of the closest. And the idea is to get to a point where they can sequence DNA so that they can inject it directly into an egg of a band-tailed pigeon. They'd actually make a little hole in the egg, inject the DNA down into it, and then patch the hole with essentially what looks like saran wrap and allow it to continue to develop until it hatches into a hatchling. Now, the hatchling is going to look and behave just like a band-tailed pigeon. It is, to all outward appearances, a simple band-tailed pigeon. But its reproductive cells, as in its egg or sperm cells, will be passenger pigeon cells. So if you can take a male and female band-tailed pigeon that's been altered in this way and breed them together, then in theory you would get a passenger pigeon. Kind of cool. Also weird. A
1: little bit terrifying, but pretty cool, yeah. Uh,
4: The 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 weirdest part is or I don't know if it's the weirdest part, but a weird part, is that they're not really sure how to teach the passenger pigeons how to be passenger pigeons, assuming that this works. Because this is not this is not something that's happened yet. It's it's something that they hypothesize would be possible, but they haven't proved it yet. Uh but the thing that they're wondering is, okay, if it hatches into this passenger pigeon after you know it's it's two generations removed from when th- things things started. from got the creation. Started, yeah. Um will it behave like a band tailed pigeon or would some behaviors be innate yeah, in passenger I guess pigeons?
5: That would come down to the question of whether its behaviors are more learned or instinctual. Yeah. Sure.
1: And I'm 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 wondering in the case of pigeons, I mean, and no offense to to pigeon aficionados out there, but but exactly how big the differences and whether or not that's uh Whether or not that's the operative point when you're talking pigeons. I
4: think the biggest uh, difference is migratory patterns because Ah. the passenger pigeon wasn't very didn't migrate very much. And some of these other pigeons do. So it's one of those things where you're not they're, they're not sure if this is even possible. And if we do bring passenger pigeons back, will they behave the way passenger pigeons of old did or will they be some sort of new species that Uh, are very close to what passenger pigeons were, but behave in a different way. And honestly, people aren't sure. And those are important questions because that also puts an impact upon the ecosystem that the passenger pigeon encounters. Like, you have to remember, and we're going to talk about this a lot in our next section, about the fact that... The world is this really interconnected, complicated system. And just because you add one thing in one place doesn't mean it's not somehow going to affect something else really far away just through uh, this whole, you know, kind of domino effect or chaos theory, if you're a certain mathematician. So this brings us to this question of if let's assuming that these these different approaches bear fruit, that they are able to bring at least some types of extinct species back to life through one of these methods. What are some of the other ethical and practical considerations we have to make uh, with this technology in mind? Uh, One
5: of the ones I've seen, though I take some issue with it, is this view that, well, it might be a zero-sum game, you know, so that if we're putting – money and effort and time and attention into bringing extinct species back from the dead, are we going to be therefore losing all of those same types of investments that we should be putting into keeping endangered species alive?
4: Well, yeah. I mean, if it's the super flashy, sexy kind of technology where you could tell people, hey, the majestic woolly mammoth could stride across the plains again. I mean, people are are going to get excited about that. But it's something that none of who us have ever seen.
5: Who cares about pandas? Let's <laughs> well, bring the woolly mammoth to back. To be
4: fair, even conservationists say, "Who cares about pandas?" <laughs> because Aww. they 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 claim, or at least the ones I read claim, are the panda the panda thing is. Like pandas are plentiful compared to, say, white rhinos. <laughs> you know? Well, who cares about
5: white rhinos? Let's bring woolly mammoths. See
4: that—that's the worry, right? And and like you said, it, it's kind of two pronged. It's worrying about taking attention away from conservation efforts, and also, and probably more importantly, money from conservation efforts.
5: Yeah. So if that were really how it worked, like in order to invest in bringing something back from extinction, you have to take money away from conservation. I would consider that a very legitimate complaint. I don't think it necessarily works that way. Like uh,
1: no. And I think that really, in fact, you're, you're going to be drawing attention to the overall issue. And I mean, I would imagine.
4: Well, I know that a lot of these projects specifically take conservation as one of their big concerns so yeah. that they they acknowledge that conservation is very important and that they don't want to be considered an alternative to conservation, that's more of a supplement to conservation efforts. But like the way
5: specifically saying it's not a zero sum game.
4: Right. The The problem is that when you start reporting on this stuff and I mean, it's easy to see why this this happens in the media. But the attention is this is super awesome, cool technology that could really be interesting if it works. Uh, and it would be able to bring species that most of us have never, ever seen back to life. That's really enticing. And it may not be the the real story may not be that it's, you know, de-extinction versus conservation. It's just that the way the media portrays it, it seems like de-extinction is the cool thing and conservation isn't really mentioned very frequently, except in some of those more in-depth articles where they really try to 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 dig down deep and get into the story. And we read quite a few of those articles and some of them are amazing. Like they really look at all facets of the story and they, they take this head on. And I would agree that I think conservation and de-extinction can survive side by side. They can, they can complement one another. Uh, I do also think that when it comes to someone giving their money to a cause, uh, the de extinction one can, might seem more attractive to certain people just because it does seem more exotic and flashy. But I don't think it's gonna be something that funnels like 90% of the funding away from conservation.
1: Uh, yeah, and I don't think that anyone's going to, um, going to just say like, well, well, screw those pandas because, uh, we can just revive them later. Yeah. <laughs> if, I mean.
5: Yeah, it seems like some people do take that complaint. Let me, if I can advocate something here, despite the fact that this is a uh, a future technology kind of uh, show we're doing here, if you are really actually forced to choose between conservation and de-extinction, go with conservation. Obviously, right? I oh, mean,
4: sure. Well, and and we'll talk a little bit about how some of these uh, approaches can help in conservation efforts as well. And we, I should also point out that. Everyone says – and not that I have a money figure to put on this – but everyone says that this de-extinction approach is going to be complicated. It's going to be uh, – especially in the early years – unreliable or uh, or difficult, and it's going to be really expensive. So it's not something that is going to be done for every single species that has ever gone extinct. There's going to be choices made. Uh, and so it may very well be that this is something that happens with a few passion projects where people are really pushing to bring back certain species and others are left behind. And it's not because one is better than the other. It's just that that's where people were able to direct the money and effort toward.
1: Uh, sure. But let's talk about a few of those reasons why we would want to. I mean, if if we really only had ten dollars um and those ten dollars could fund either de-extinction forever or conservation forever, why should we go with conservation?
5: I'd say one thing is that it's something you can trust in because you can see it like it's our conservation actually works. Yeah. Like there's no question about. Uh, you know, what will happen if we stop killing these animals? Right. You know, like, oh, okay, if we stop killing them, that actually will work. De-extinction is questionable. It might work, it might not. Sure. In, in so,
4: of- so there's a risk on, on return. I mean, just based upon that, if you're, if you want to just separate yourself from the whole animal thing, it's, There's there's one method that you know is going toward helping actual living creatures right now, and one method that could possibly maybe bring something back, but we aren't sure.
5: We also know that any animal that is sustaining a population on Earth today, at least barring major human intervention, has a place in its current ecosystem. Right.
4: In other words, the ecosystem is able to support that population.
5: Uh, I So I would say, well, maybe let's bring back the woolly mammoth. Well, I'm not sure that the woolly mammoth necessarily has a place in today's ecosystem. And that
4: is another great argument that people make about this de-extinction question. It's that you can't really be sure with some of these species that they would have a place in the world where they could survive, let alone thrive and for species that have been extinct for a few thousand years the question is is more you know unknown we don't know because ecosystems do change over time not necessarily rapidly, unless there's outside intervention in the form of you know humans messing with an ecosystem or something really massive like a meteor strike or whatever meteorite right, I guess I should say strike. But these systems do change over time, and it's possible that some species would find it very difficult to survive in today's ecosystems.
1: Absolutely, and we're not just talking about the the, the macro scale of of predators and prey and all that kind of stuff. Also the micro scale. I mean, the more that we learn about the microbiome, the, the more we think it could have a serious impact on on any given macro organism's um, quality of life and even survival. We, we talked recently in our episodes about antibiotics and hygiene, that, that germs aren't always harp- harmful. Um, you know, a, a lot of them evolved in tandem with multicellular species. And that really weird stuff happens when we kill too many germs off.
4: Right. Now, for a species that have gone extinct relatively recently... It may be that there are plenty of ecosystems in which it could survive and thrive. Uh, so something that died out, you know, ten years ago or fifty years ago, might still have a place to, to survive and be relatively fine. Uh, but for things that went extinct much longer ago, the question is, well. Has the world changed so much that this creature would have a real hard time to survive? And is it fair to bring something back to life if it's just going to die out again?
5: Right. And I think that question is crucial because even if we're just talking about species that were driven to extinction by humans and not by natural forces, this is not just, like, hunters going out and killing all of them. A lot of what we're talking about, in fact, I don't know for sure, but I would guess that most of it is due to habitat destruction. Sure,
4: but the... You know, people building cities and going further and further into the surrounding environments mm-hmm. to cut down trees, make pasture land, all that kind of stuff.
1: Uh, food sources or, or breeding grounds or anything like that yeah. slowly disappearing. Yeah.
5: So, I mean, one of the easiest ways to kill an animal is not to go out looking for all of them and kill them for their tusks or whatever Although it is that's you want. much
1: more action packed.
5: Well, yeah, it's to destroy their habitat. Yeah. If they don't have a place to live and thrive and occupy, th- right. there's no chance for them.
4: One more argument that I've heard uh, against de-extinction is based a lot on the fact that we just don't know very much about what will happen should this technology Prove to be useful to to actually work. Uh, And that is that species may be able to spread or cause disease or otherwise harm an ecosystem. So it may be that a a species that was extinct, when it comes back, becomes a carrier for a disease and then spreads it much more quickly than it would have if uh, that species had never been brought back. That's one. It's really an argument from the unknown, right? We just don't know. This is plausible outcome. But we don't know if it's a, or at least a possible outcome. We don't know how plausible it is. Uh, and also just to worry about how it would end up affecting the ecosystem you introduce it to, assuming that you're not just bringing species back to put them in zoos, then putting them into any kind of ecosystem is going to affect that ecosystem.
1: Oh, sure. And even even bits of stuff from Other ecosystems that currently exist on the planet can be very detrimental. I mean, look at a kudzu or um, the little zebra mussels of the Great Lakes or or
4: uh, rats everywhere Um, or dogs and cats in, say, Australia, New Zealand, which ended up wiping out a lot of both the other predators and prey. Uh, in that region. So, yeah, I mean, we, we've seen how bringing a, a, a foreign species into an ecosystem can wreak havoc among the rest of the uh, the life forms that are there. And for these extinct animals, especially some of them, they you could consider them, you know, an alien species to that ecosystem, uh, depending upon how long they've been gone.
5: Well, probably. Alien more so than any foreign species currently on Earth, right?
4: Well, yeah, arguably. I mean, depending, I guess, I guess it really depends. (laughs) We got some really crazy life forms in some very specific ecosystems. And to take them out and put them into something else would uh, definitely be unethical. Don't do that. (laughs) So one other thing I wanted to touch on before we conclude is other ways this technology could be used. And I had mentioned that there is the possibility that they could use this technology to help in conservation efforts. In other words, specifically helping out endangered species rather than necessarily trying to bring back an extinct one to try and create more biodiversity in existing small populations. So for some species, we're talking you know, there's some animals out there where the only known members of that population, it, it adds up to maybe a couple of dozen or maybe uh, even fewer than that.
5: Well, that's not going to be healthy if their gene pool is that small.
4: Exactly. You you start to really worry about the biodiversity in that population. Uh, they can become more prone to birth defects and illnesses. So if you're able to increase that biodiversity, perhaps through using similar methods from the ones we were talking about earlier but instead of trying to create a new species you're just you're trying to create new babies in that population but from diverse uh samples of DNA perhaps gathered from you know either zoos or uh in the case of animals that are no longer you know that are they're endangered in the wild but we still have a zoo population somewhere Uh, Or animals from, you know, material from museums, things like that, to help increase biodiversity and thus uh, make the populations more hardy.
5: In addition to giving them more genetic diversity, I wonder if genetic engineering could come in to help an animal species that has been endangered by a specific threat. Say, like, if you have a fish that is at great risk because of one specific chemical pollutant in its water supply. Could you introduce into the, the genome of that fish a gene that makes it more resistant to that pollutant?
4: Yeah, getting into genetic engineering here, and that certainly has its own huge list of controversial uh, elements to it. Uh, as um, we talked
1: about in our uh, food GMO episodes. Yeah, right.
4: And GMO, genetically modified organism, it doesn't necessarily have to just refer to plants. It can talk – we can talk about animals as well. Sure. Um, I mean – in in theory or at least you know you could hypothesize that such a thing is possible uh i don't know how long it would take you talking about such a specific application it's it's a little tricky because, uh, I mean, one thing, it would give you a lot of focus in whatever it was you were trying to attempt. But the worry would be that whatever – whatever, whenever you got to a point where you could address the problem, the problem would either have changed or uh, the population would be dead anyway. So, oh,
1: but, it, but it's an interesting idea and an inter- interesting application of the technology and maybe a little bit more practical than trying to bring back velociraptors.
4: Uh, well, definitely. All, who wants those? Cr- they're terrible. Uh, possibly they're, so smart. they're they're awful at parties they're- <laughs>
5: <laughs> but on the other hand if you were going to try to do something like that then again you're tampering and introducing this unknown factor right like yeah. we talked about with with other options earlier you're you're changing an organism which is kind of like introducing an alien organism uh, to sure. an ecosystem you don't know exactly how that new organism with its different genetic profile is going to function in that ecosystem. What if by giving this fish a gene to make it resistant to this pollutant suddenly it takes over and now yeah. it's it's an invasive species. The, right.
1: The the superfish might turn out to be way more detrimental than
4: then what would have happened if you had just let it alone yeah. Like yeah, that I mean, fish die. This Let kind of
1: fish die. Sorry. <laughs> this,
4: this kind of brings us to the final point, which is uh, this idea that you could create whole new species in a way that's kind of what would be happening with the passenger pigeon, right? Whole
5: new – so not just like a uh, pollutant-resistant fish, but maybe like a fish with eight eyes and a human arm.
4: Yeah, or a machine gun. You know, Okay. It, it has the equivalent of – No, the, ho, you're, ho, you're ho. talking
5: Dr. Moreau.
4: Yeah, I'm talking Dr. Moreau in a way. I mean – even more than Dr. Moreau, which was kind of like the chimera approach, where he was combining various animals and making them try- anthropomorphized and all this kind of stuff.
5: Jonathan, can you do the voice? Just, just do the voice. For <laughs> what
4: this. you want me to do? Marlon Brando yeah. as Dr. Monroe. <laughs> Do Dr. Munro. Munro. Murrow. That Munro would be the one for The Simpsons. Right. Uh, no, I cannot do that. Uh, you got me okay. tempted, but I'm not going to. Cause I can't remember the line anymore. Uh-huh. It's Val Kilmer doing, I, I do a terrible impersonation of Val Kilmer doing a terrible impersonation of Marlon Brando doing Dr. Murro. So, um, <laughs> that's the way that chain goes. But at any rate, uh, the idea is here that, you know, if you could, if you could sequence, if you could construct a workable genome for an animal that has never existed, which in a way is kind of what some of these people are doing. You know, they're combining a genome for one species with genomes from very closely related species in an effort to try and revive extinct, like the extinct passenger pigeon. That's specifically the example. But if you take this idea and you extend it into the future and you think, well, what about once we figure out how to actually build those genomes what stops us from eventually designing a genome for a species that never existed? It's not that it's uh, something that went extinct and we got some of its DNA back and we filled in the gaps with other DNA. This is DNA we have completely built from the ground up.
1: Like retro engineering of a velociraptor.
4: Yeah. Essentially that would be the idea is that you could, in theory, if assuming that all of this would work. I mean, these are big assumptions. This is really talking like crazy like singularity level future idea. Sure, sure. But yes, you could do that. You could say, Well, now we can build ourselves a dinosaur. We can't we can't resurrect the dinosaurs from
1: but we their can DNA. Make a chicken really big and extra mean.
4: Pretty much. Wasn't that
5: even a plot point in the novel Jurassic Park? Like, the dinosaurs they were making weren't exactly dinosaurs. They they were making these things that were what people wanted to see when they came to see a dinosaur. And that they
1: specifically changed them around a little bit to make them more uh, tourist happy. Yeah.
5: Yeah,
4: Yeah, although they did have several of the behaviors that confirmed the one one paleontologist's theories, like the fact that they would uh, migrate. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that was that was very important in the book toward the very end as I recall. But anyway, uh yeah, so that's kind of an interesting idea. We don't know that it will ever happen. Uh for one thing, I mean, we still are waiting for the real success story of bringing a species back from extinction. Uh, personally, I hope that it does happen. I would love to see some extinct species come back. I would really love to see this technology being dedicated to help in conservation efforts, obviously. Um I would really, really love to see human beings behave in a responsible manner to the species around them and not kill them off through destroying their habitats or otherwise. That would be lovely. Shut
5: up, hippie. I know. <laughs> you You I don't know. like panda steaks? Get off this podcast. Our
4: pandas can go. I mean, they can go. They had their time. But uh, no, I'm just kidding guys. I don't
1: Create r- more of pandas I am so that we can too. all eat panda sticks.
5: I, as, as y'all know, I love all the critters of the forest and I only joke.
4: Yes, yes, we are. We are making some light of what is otherwise a pretty heavy situation here. But uh, anyway, we will make sure to share a lot of the the articles that we read in preparation for this episode, because uh, a lot of them go into to great detail and, and give a really full examination of the story. Some of them are more like profile pieces, but a lot of them really kind of dive into it, make sure that, the, that you can tell the reporter went through the trouble of interviewing various experts with differing points of view to kind of get the full story story so uh, we'll definitely share those in the future and uh, yeah this was a fun topic to to consider because i mean just throwing it out there i know this is kind of similar to the question i had about if you could have any sort of robot animal what would it be if you could bring back any extinct species what would it be beholder no, no, an cube. actual species, not not <laughs> constructing a new species. I mean, a real species that once lived on the earth and now is no more.
5: Uh, I, I you didn't prepare me for this. I, I, I can't think of what it would be. Um,
4: uh, Dodo. No, Dodo's good. That was my choice for robot animal. I, oh, I like yeah, Dodo's right, coming right. back.
1: Um. I'm I'm really curious about, about actually horticulture, the way that it existed a few hundred or a few thousand years ago. Like, I want to taste the strawberries that, that Queen Victoria had in her childhood.
4: Yeah, or have a decent banana since all the really good species have pretty much died out. Oh,
5: I'm raising my hand. Uh, Megalodon.
4: Oh, a megalodon! You want an
5: megalodon. enormous
4: shark? Oh, yeah, yes, because that way we can have an even better version of Jaws.
5: Yeah, I got you. Megalodon. Right. Oh no,
4: there are plenty of megalodon movies oh, no, already. I, I'm aware of them. <laughs> I know someone who produced one. Well, so. well, but
1: we need a documentary. I mean, a real documentary. Yeah.
4: Well, can you imagine Megalodon Week? <laughs> hmm. Hmm. i'm in here, actually we can here make it it a megalodon thinking month.
5: we watch megalodon movies so yeah. we can tell you about the future of
4: megalodons <laughs> now uh it, since you didn't ask but i'm going to tell you anyway uh, i'm going to choose woolly mammoth i know it's the popular oh, okay. choice everyone talks about but it's um, they're so furry i mean it would just be I, I can't imagine the intellectual and emotional experience i would i would undergo witnessing a woolly mammoth walking around
5: i can't imagine a better way to feed a megalodon
4: (laughs) than than a woolly mammoth right just just dangle a giant woolly mammoth over the megalodons
5: megalodons aren't going to want to eat modern animals they're going to (laughs) want to eat woolly mammoths it
4: it wants to hunt (laughs) all right so we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up on that cheerful note. So guys, if you have any suggestions for our discussions, maybe you want to join in. Maybe there's something about this particular topic you would like to uh, contribute to. Well, let us know. We have an email address you can send us mail. It is at discovery.com, or you can make contact with us on the various social networks that we uh, often can be found on. Those include Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus with the handle fwthinking. And we've We'll talk to you again really soon.
2: For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History
4: slash compatibility.
3: Visit cdc.gov slash screenforlife for more information.